All right, well, I'm glad you guys could be with us this morning. At this time, kids ages four to six are welcome to join Caleb and my wife Phyllis and a good number of my kids over there. <laughs> um, what are you guys studying this morning? Joseph and something. Reveals his identity to his brothers. Okay, great. Well, great. Well, you guys can head on up and we'll pray for you. Uh, Kids, if you're still here, all right, you're seven and up, I just want to let you know that right over here at this welcome table, we have uh, some sermon note sheets and some colored pencils. You are welcome to use those uh, to take notes or to draw pictures about the sermon or things like that, or to keep tally marks of every time I say the word God. And if you can do that, I don't even know how many times I'll say God, but if you can do that, then you win a prize. I'll figure out what it is. Um, also, kids, I just want to remind you of the fact that, you know, the preached word is really, really important. You might not understand that completely, and you might not be able to understand everything I say. And so what I would encourage you to do is just to write down a question or two or three, whatever questions you have about anything that I said, and then afterwards, go and talk to your parents about it, or you're welcome to come and talk to me. I want to make sure that you understand the Word of God. It is really, really important to us, okay? So let's pray together for our time, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day where we can gather to worship and praise you for what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, I pray that it would never become old, that it would never seem routine or mundane, that we would really sing unending songs of the glory that you have shown, the grace that you have shown, the mercy that you've shown, the love that you've shown for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that it would be our heart's desire to proclaim Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. That that would be our our delight. That would be our motivation. And that it would affect every aspect of our lives. And Lord, we pray for our kids that, that they would see their need of Jesus. And they would see just how great a Lord and Savior He really is. And I pray for our time down here as we talk about how the gospel changes everything, every aspect of our lives. Lord, may we not set our hope or find our identity in anything other than Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We're looking at verses 5 through 9 this morning. You can find it on page 979 in the Bibles provided in the chairs. Now, does it ever amaze and just absolutely befuddle you that the God of the universe... I mean, the God that created all there is, from from every grain of sand and every microscopic organism to every star in the heavens, this God of the universe who created all there is cares about you and what you do with your life. I mean, it is amazing, is it not, that he actually cares about us, that God thinks about us, that God has, has called us to reveal and reflect His glory in our lives. I mean, our lives on this earth are a momentary vapor, here today and gone tomorrow. And this is the eternal God with no beginning and no end, and yet He calls us to glorify Him, to use these precious moments that He has given us for His glory and for our joy in Him. I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All, everything to the glory 
of God. Every seemingly meaningless, insignificant, mundane activity or moment of our lives was meant by the infinitely glorious God of the universe who created all there is to be spent for His glory and for our joy in Him. That is amazing. Friends, your lives are no accident. The sovereign God of the universe who determines the allotted periods and boundaries of nations, the God of the universe who determines the lifespan of stars has numbered your days. This God of the universe put you where you are. He set the boundaries of your life and placed you right here and right now. He's given you life and breath and everything that you have as a context for your discipleship to draw you to himself. And so that through every, every day, just meaningless Seemingly insignificant moments and activities and decisions and and actions that you might seek God and find Him there. Men, women, husbands, wives, singles, parents, children, students, workers, bosses, you are who you are. And you are where you are. You have been given this life that you have been given as a context for your discipleship. To lead you to dependence upon Christ. To lead you to grow to maturity in Christ. To lead you to a place in which you might reflect the glory of Christ with your lives to others around you. It is no mistake It is no accident that no matter what your station is, no matter your current context, every moment of your lives matters to God and is meant for His glory and your joy in Him. It's amazing. But so often, we forget that. Or maybe you're here and you've never actually heard that before. Regardless, we're all in the same boat. That instead of living for God's glory and for our joy in Him, we use these precious fleeting lives that we've been given for our own glory and for our own joy in every gift that the Lord has given us rather than in God Himself. And so, God gives me the gift of marriage, but I make marriage about me. God has given me the gift of family, but I make my family about me. God has given me my job, but I make my job about me. God has given me my life, but I make my life about me. And I'll use any and every means available to me to maximize my joy in my own glory. Friends, I want you to understand that there is incalculable meaning to your life. So much so that the fruit of this finite life that we've been given will echo on for eternity and it will have consequences for us forever and ever and ever. This life. Nothing is mundane. Nothing is insignificant. Nothing is unimportant. Not a moment, not a thought, not a decision. Nothing is meaningless. But that meaning... And that purpose, 
that inestimable value is not found in making much of ourselves or trying to find our satisfaction in all of God's gifts and all that the world has to offer. True glory, true meaning, true joy is found in living the lives that we were created by God to live. Lives that bring glory to God and satisfaction to our souls. Now this morning, we're dealing with one of the most prominent areas of our lives where we get this confused. Where we try to find our meaning and our identity and our satisfaction in the gifts of God rather than in God himself. We're dealing with the workplace. How do we live for the glory of Christ in our jobs? How do we avoid discontentment with our work? How do we faithfully do our jobs but not fall into the success trap and seek to find our identity and meaning in what we do for a living? This is a word for those who love their jobs. And this is a word for those who hate their jobs. This is a word for those who have no motivation to work. And this is a word for those who work themselves to death as a means of gain. This is a word for those who are under the authority and supervision of others. And this is a word for those who serve as supervisors to others. And God's word for us this morning from Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, is that servants and masters, or you might think of it in terms of employees and employers, or workers and bosses, or those who serve under the authority of another, and those who serve as authorities to another. Servants and masters display the glories of Christ by faithfully performing their duties as to the Lord. Servants and masters display the glories of Christ by faithfully fulfilling their duties as to the Lord. Now please read with me. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. It says, Slaves, or maybe your translation says bondservants or servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with sincerity of heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Now this passage has two particular messages and two particular audiences, slaves and masters. Now, the last time I checked, slavery was a bad thing that by the grace of God has been abolished. And so what does this have to do with us? Well, I've got to do a lot of background work if we're going to appro- like just appropriately apply this passage to our lives. And so I will just say right up front, Preaching Lab guys, don't try this at home. Leave this to the professionals, okay? 
I've got to remind us, first of all, remind us of the message of Ephesians as a whole, because it's so important to get the message of Ephesians as a whole if we are going to rightly understand how this passage applies, not only to Paul's original audience of slaves and masters, but also to us. And second, I have to deal with the issue of slavery, right? Slaves and masters, it's right there. And so I've got to deal with those as briefly as I can to bring us up to speed so that we can know how to rightly apply this to our lives. So the message of Ephesians. The message of Ephesians is that the lavish grace of God transforms our hearts and unites us together in Christ. Friends, you have to understand through the book of Ephesians that the gospel changes everything, absolutely everything. All right, the gospel message is more than simply the forgiveness of our sin or how we are to follow the example of Christ. That misses the point. Okay? The gospel message is that we were all dead in our sin. Absolutely dead. That we were all enslaved by our desire to live and to pursue and to seek our own glory, to try to find our satisfaction and our meaning in all of the gifts that God has given us, but not God himself. Well, friends, you have to recognize that this is treason to God. This is a personal affront to who he is. And because of our rebellion against the God who created us, the God who has given us everything, the God who sustains our lives, we have willingly and willfully placed ourselves under God's wrath for our sin. We were condemned by him, and we did this to ourselves. We are, as Ephesians would tell us, hopeless, helpless, and without God in the world. But amazing hope is given. So if you read in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. For by grace, you have been saved. God has taken us, rebels to his will. Those who try to live apart from him, as if this is my world and I am God. He has taken those and he has made us alive together with Christ. He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And so we now have new life in Christ. We are not who we once were. Everything at that point has changed. He has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God himself has enlightened the eyes of our hearts so that we might come to him through repentance and faith. And as a result of God's work, we together are now God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, our salvation is so much more than freedom from the power and penalty of sin. Now, it is that, but it's so much more than that. It is new life that radically changes every aspect of our lives. And so if you're looking at chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, you see that not only are we saved from our sin, but we're actually united with Christ And because of our union with Christ, we're now united to each other. And so it breaks down every social barrier that we would erect in our sin. The social barrier that they're dealing with there in in Ephesians chapter 2 is the the separation between Jew and Gentile. These people had nothing to do with each other. And, And the gospel changes all that. 
This guy over here, he's still a Jew. That guy over there, he's still a Gentile. But none of that matters anymore because they are now one in Christ. They are now part of God's kingdom. They are fellow citizens of God's kingdom. They are adopted sons and daughters into God's one family. They are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. They are one now. And so all of those social barriers that we would try to erect to separate us one from another, they don't matter anymore because we are in Christ. And because we have this new life in Christ, we are then to walk in that new identity. We are to, we're called to live our lives differently than the world lives. We are to walk worthy of our calling there. And he's not saying, listen, if you walk in this way, then you can have the calling. No, he's saying you are new creation in Christ. You have a new identity. Now be who you now are in Jesus. You are not that anymore. That's not who you are. Stop living the way the world lives, to pursue futility, things that cannot satisfy, that cannot give you what you're longing for. Stop living in ways that you were not meant to live. Live for me. That's not how we learned Christ. Instead, we are to put off that former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That is now who you are. And friends, that changes everything. We are not who we once were. We are not like the world. We are now made new in Christ. And so we long to live in a way that reflects that new identity to the others around us and help others grow to do the same, to grow to maturity in Christ. Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. It's not that I profess certain things to be true. I say that I'm a Christian. Christians are changed and they want to live differently. Not perfectly, but more and more and more. And the gospel changes how we relate to everyone around us. So that when we got into chapter 4, every action is meant to be a display of the gospel. Friends, we're called to tell the truth because God is truth. God always tells the truth. It is the truth that set us free. We are to be angry and not sin because God is never sinful in his wrath against sin. We are to uh, not steal, but to labor to give because that's what God does. We are to speak words that give grace rather than corrupt because that's what God does. We are to put away all bitterness and forgive because God in Christ forgave us. And through the sacrifice of Christ, we have been adopted as sons and daughters into God's family. Therefore, we are to imitate our Father, as beloved children. And so we desire to walk as those who are wise. We desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're not trying to seek our own way, to desire to do things our own way, apart from God or apart from His people. That's not what we want to do. Our new life in Christ changes everything. It changes every motive, every thought, Every desire, every word, every decision, every action, and every activity. And that was true for the slave, and that was true for the master. There is no longer any area of our lives where we can say, this is mine. That I can kind of hold on to this apart from God, apart from Christ. Like I can keep it to myself because chapter 5 verses 22 through chapter 6 verse 4 has told us that God 
says this has implications even for the most intimate relationships you have. It works itself right into your home. And so wives, you're to submit in everything to your own husbands as to the Lord. That in doing so, you reflect the nature of of the church's submission to Christ. And to obey them is to obey Christ. But husbands... Husbands, you are to love your wives in everything as Christ loved the church who gave himself up, who sacrificed his wants and his desires and his good for them so that he might build them up and nourish them and provide for them and protect them, not just physically but spiritually, so that they might grow and be nourished and come to maturity in him. Children, you are to obey your parents in everything in the Lord that this is A reflection of the way God's people are to relate to God the Father himself. But parents, you are to bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It is not your way or the highway. It is his way. And now he says to slaves, obey your earthly masters as to the Lord. And masters, treat them justly and fairly in service to the Lord. I hope you see that in each of these three couplets, he gives a word first to those who are to submit. Submit as unto the Lord. And then he gives a word to those who are to lead or to be head or to serve as authorities over those who are to submit. And he says, lead in submission to Christ. Right? So wives, submit as unto the Lord. Husbands, use your headship in submission to Christ. He says to children, children, obey as unto the Lord. Parents, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord in submission to Christ. He says to slaves, the way you serve Christ is by obeying your earthly masters, but masters employ your authority in submission to Christ. So wherever you are, whoever you are, Whatever you've been given, whatever position you find yourself in right here and right now, that is the context for your discipleship. So that you might display the intricacies, the glories of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as you faithfully fulfill your God-given responsibilities to the Lord. And that's huge. Never once are we free from the need to submit to Christ. No one is free. Whereas Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now I know that that's a lot, but we've been away from Ephesians for four weeks now. and We've got to get ourselves back up. And that's so important for us to understand why Paul says what he says to slaves and to masters. And if we get the why, then we can get how this applies to us. It's so key that we see how grace works in that and how the gospel changes everything. And now there's this issue of slavery. Paul says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. And he doesn't say, Masters, free your slaves. Now, does that mean that the Apostle Paul is condoning slavery? Absolutely not. Not for a second. 
Paul is not arguing for the rightness or the sin of slavery in this passage. What he is doing is, like we've seen already, what I've hoped to demonstrate through the message of Ephesians is that he is calling us who have been united in Christ to live for Christ today in the midst of your current situation, regardless of what that is. Right? This is not a political manifesto that Paul has given us. It is a letter from one brother to his extended spiritual family, calling them to display the gracious glory of Christ in their lives, regardless of their current situation, regardless of their station. And how are they to do that in this current context that they find themselves in? And so he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters as you would obey your true master, the Lord Jesus Christ. That to obey them is to obey Christ. And you could add to that just by way of implication. If your earthly master is a Christian, serve him as a brother. Masters, you have a master in heaven who will see and judge everything you do. You serve him. And in light of your eternal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, your true master, this earthly master-servant relationship, it means nothing. We can't look at each other the same way. You can't treat that person as chattel, as property to be bought and sold and used up. They were created in the image of God. They are your brothers. And if they... And so treat them as such. Do you understand that the gospel absolutely removes this this priority, this slave-master mentality? It's all removed. We can't look at those positions in the same way at all. As a Christian, you cannot look at others the same way that you did before you were in Christ. And so though Christianity in Paul's day had no ability to affect the issue of slavery on a large national scale because they were the persecuted minority that had no influence in the Roman Empire, that issue was utterly and completely transformed in the home. That let your minds wrap around that. The mission of Christ is to the individual and the home, not political activity. I'm not saying that we don't use our votes well and speak, use our voices that God has given us for that, but that's not what Christianity is. Guys, think about what's happening in the book of Acts with regards to households. Okay, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 18. Think about what's happening here. All right, the gospel is going forward. The disciples of Christ are going out and they are sharing the good news of Jesus Christ in these households. Now, these households are comprised not just of the master, right, the house owner, the home owner and his family and those friends that he might have invited in, but also that includes his slaves, his servants, those who are indentured under him. That's the household that's happening there. 
And as the gospel is being proclaimed, God is opening the eyes of their hearts. They are seeing the gospel for the first time and they are repenting of their sin and they are believing in Christ and the Holy Spirit falls upon them all and transforms everything. And so there they are. I mean, you've got master and slave together. Now both believers in Christ, both sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, both believing in the gospel, utterly changed, utterly transformed. They can't look at each other the same. Friends, do you recognize how different that home was? In an instant, it was changed. Those relationships were changed, whether or not that man remained as a slave or what he, whether or not he was set free. He was not to be viewed as property. He was not to be mistreated, but tr- treated with dignity and justice and fairness, both as a brother and was one created in the image of Christ because they are now one. Unbelievable transformation right there. And from that point on, that man was to be viewed more as an employee than as a slave. He is not a piece of property. He is utterly transformed. And so is your relationship to him. Now, if we wanted to learn more about that dynamic between that transformed relationship between master and slave, then read the book of Philemon. Okay, and finally, or, or tell you what, you can just go and listen to Josh McCann's sermons at the preaching lab on the book of Philemon. <laughs> He's like, what are you doing? <laughs> now, in the book of Philemon, Paul is arguing for the reconciliation of a runaway slave, Onesimus, who at the time where he ran away was not a believer, but later became a believer, and that of the master, Philemon, who had later become a believer. Right? So now here they are, separated by some distance, both believers in Christ, and Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. And he's not doing it because he's saying, listen, Onesimus, I know you don't like it, but you're the property of Philemon. That's not what he's saying. Instead, he says, I think it's in verse 15, for this is perhaps why he, Onesimus, was parted from you, Philemon, for a while, that you may have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. You know, so much more could be said on the issue of slavery. I mean, I've said nothing about just the historical differences between slavery in Paul's day and slavery in 19th century America or 21st century America, for that matter. I've said nothing about how it is estimated that one-third of the population of the Roman Empire was believed to be slaves, approximately 60 million people. I don't know how they figured it out, but I guess I just told you. <clears throat> or how it, was based upon, it wasn't based upon race like it was in 19th century America. Or how the conditions varied widely. Some were abusive situations, but some slaves were doctors and professionals, teachers, administrators. Some had families and land and were given freedom and and treated much more as family in their homes than they were uh, as slaves. And so all of that varies. But I will say this, that even though the Bible does not give us a verse that outright says, slavery is an abomination to the Lord, therefore masters must free their slaves... 
I do believe, I absolutely believe that Christian doctrine, the gospel itself, undermines slavery at every single corner. Let's just think about it. The doctrine of the man being created in the image of God undermines slavery. And when Paul argued for the headship of the husband and submission of the wife, he argued from creation. So this was rooted in creation. When the Bible argues that marriage is to be a covenant union under God between one man and one woman, and that our sexual intimacy is to flow out of that union, the Bible argues from creation. Slavery is not a part of creation, but as a result of mankind's fall into sin. Yes, man was given dominion over all of God's creation, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that creeps along the ground. But, but my guess is he did not intend that to include mankind created in the image of God. That that was not what it meant. They are not to be viewed as cattle. He's your fellow brother created in the image of God with dignity. He was meant to reflect God's very nature, God's very character. So we are to treat him appropriately as we would God. Because he is created after God's likeness. The doctrine of sin undermines slavery. This is kind of cool. It tells us that all mankind has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That regardless of your station. Regardless of your position, no matter how high and exalted you think that you are, the reality is you are all sinners under the wrath of God. You, have, you are dead, you are enslaved, and you are condemned by your sin, regardless of your position. The playing field is equaled. The doctrine of the impartiality of God's judgment undermines slavery. We see that in verse 9, that God does not play favorites. There is no partiality with him. Wealthy landowners and masters are no better off in the eyes of God than the poor slave. And so we cannot look at them as lesser beings because God does not. They are not lesser beings. The doctrine of salvation undermines slavery. It is only by the blood of Christ that anyone can be cleansed of their sin. Only by his blood, not your station, regardless of whether or not you are slave or free. Our salvation in Christ not only covers our sin, but it unites us to Christ and to each other. We have become fellow citizens of God's kingdom. We are now brothers and sisters in God's one family. There are not multiple families or families divided by race. It is one family. We are being built together into one holy temple in the Lord. And we are all now, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, priests one to another. Colossians 3 verse 11 says, Here. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. We are all one in Christ. And the doctrine of last things undermines slavery. When Christ returns and man is at last 
fully and finally reconciled to live with God forever, to be his people in his place under his rule and blessing. There will be a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages, both great and small, former slaves and former masters, all redeemed and united and perfected, standing around the throne and before the lamb and in one loud voice proclaiming salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. That is our hope. That is the direction that we are heading. And if that doesn't undermine slavery, friends, then I don't know what does. There is no partiality. It transforms the way we look at service and the way we look at supervision. Utterly changed. Everything changes because of the gospel. We've got to get that. Now that was all necessary background for us to consider if we are to rightly apply this passage to our lives. I couldn't just ignore slavery. I couldn't just ignore all the message leading up to this point and say, do this, don't do this. This is the point entirely. I want you to see that God has infinite purpose in your lives and that every aspect of your lives matters. And if that's true for slaves and masters then that is certainly true for us. For employees and employers, for workers, for bosses, for those who are under supervision and those who serve as supervisors. And so point number one, and these are come quickly, trust me, I know I've been at it for a while, okay? (laughs) Point number one in this passage, how this applies to us is that slaves are to obey in submission to Christ. Now, I left that word slave there intentionally, as we'll see in a moment. In this passage, God challenges slaves on their allegiance and their attitude, and then he gives them a promise of assurance. So if you're looking at subheadings, there you go. They're all alliterated, just for you. So that way with both of them. He says in verse 5, to slaves or to bond servants, or maybe your text just says servants, but it's slave. That's what the word means, doulos, slave. Obey your earthly masters. They are in authority over you, and you are to submit to them. Obey them. Listen to them. Do what they say. I mean, we get what the word obey means, right? Just as a child is to submit and to obey their parents in the Lord, so slaves are to obey their earthly masters. They are your earthly masters. The Lord himself has placed them as earthly authorities over you. And they are earthly masters. That word earthly there is the same word for flesh, for the world. They are sinners. They are worldly, fleshly masters. And as sinners, they will sin against you. It's a guarantee. But you are to obey them. Their authority over you is not dependent upon their perfect moral character. Just as it's not for husbands, just as it's not for parents. Their authority over you in this life is true. It is real. It is meant to be heeded. But it is temporary. It is earthly. They are your earthly masters. And so do what they say. And the same is true for us today. 
God has placed people in authority over you. No matter who you are, somebody is over you. Right? It could be government leaders. It could be bosses. It could be parents. It could be husbands. It could be church leaders. And they are all sinners too. And they will sin against you. No matter how unintentional that might be. They will fail you. But you are still to obey the governing authorities that the Lord has placed in your lives. To obey them is to obey Christ. But not only that, we are to do so with fear and trembling. Now, these words are not to be understood as to live in terror, to live in fear of someone else. When those two words are combined, fear and trembling, it conveys the notion of awe and respect and reverence. He's calling them to fully recognize the subordinate position that they have been given. Now, guys, this is huge. i got to say this. We're Americans, and so we don't like the idea at all that anyone is in authority over us. We don't want to fully acknowledge that. It's like, yeah, I kind of know that it's true. Yeah, I kind of know that God says that, but I am not submitting to my husband, right? Or I am not listening to my boss, or I am not listening to my parents. I'm not listening to my church leader. Shame on you. Uh, no, we, we must fully recognize the subordinate position that we have been given. And to respect our masters in reverence of Christ. And it's connected to the reverence of Christ because we see there in verse 5, as you would Christ. In verse 6, as servants of Christ. And in verse 7, as to the Lord. You see, in faithfully serving your earthly masters in recognition to the position that both you and they have been given by the Lord, you are faithfully serving and honoring Christ. And ultimately, you're not doing this for them. You're obeying them for Him. Your allegiance is now to follow Christ, to proclaim with your life that He is your Lord, that He is your Master. And you want to display His glory in whatever situation or context that you find yourself in, even if you are the slave to an earthly master. You're not doing this to please them by way of eye service. It's not about them and trying to gain their approval. You're not trying to look good for them or to only do what is required when their eye is upon you. Your allegiance is not to them, but it is to Christ. You serve them as you would Christ, even when no one is watching. He goes on to say that you are to obey them as servants of Christ. Now that word servant there is the same as in verse 5. It's slave. Slaves of Christ. Obey them as slaves of Christ. Friends, do you realize that you are a slave of Christ? If you are in Christ, you are a slave of Christ. Now that's not a demeaning title. After all, Paul calls himself, Epaphras, and Timothy slaves of Christ. So do Peter and John. Jesus' own half-brothers, James and Jude, call themselves slaves of Christ. 
Paul calls church leaders slaves of Christ. John calls prophets slaves of Christ. In fact, everyone whom the Lord has saved by his grace has been freed from the slavery of sin and become slaves of righteousness. They are now slaves of Christ. So if you are in Christ, you are now a slave of Christ. And friends, Christ himself became a servant and slave for us all. I mean, Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You have this because it's in Christ and it's only because of Christ that you have this. That though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He wasn't hanging on to his title. He wasn't hanging on to his position. He wasn't clinging to that and saying, no, I'm not willing to humble myself. But instead, he became nothing, taking the form of a servant, that is, a slave, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. How? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, Christ himself, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, became a servant and a slave to the will of God, his Father, for us. And when slaves obey their earthly masters, or when workers obey their bosses, or those who have been placed in authority over us, Paul says that in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, that they adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Think about that. You adorn it. You put that doctrine on display. You show who you are. Our lives are meant to display the truth that we believe. We are meant to adorn the doctrine of God with our lives. Our words, our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions are meant to make manifest the glorious doctrines that we profess to believe. Christ became a servant to all, and we are now slaves to him. The question becomes, do you believe that? Do you really, really believe that? Are you living as a slave of Christ? Does your obedience to the authorities that the Lord has placed over you reflect that? But not only does Paul call slaves to obey because of their allegiance to Christ, he also calls them to a Christ-like attitude. He says, obey your earthly masters with a sincere heart, with a true heart, a heart of integrity. Our actions flow out of our hearts. What we believe, what we desire, what we long for, what we plan for. It's not enough just to do the job begrudgingly. We are to show integrity of heart as we perform the task. It should be our desire to do it wholeheartedly as unto the Lord, knowing that for the time being, in this context, in this situation, this is what the Lord has for me. This is my context for discipleship. God is using this job, this position that I find myself in to teach me about himself, to lead me to him, to allow me to display his glory to others around me. And that doesn't happen, friends, if our heart is not sincere. That doesn't happen when I grumble and complain because I'm discontent with my job. 
That doesn't happen when I have really set my heart on something else and I'm just blankly or begrudgingly going through the motions. I'm not even really here. He says, not by way of eye service. Don't only do what you are supposed to do when your masters are watching. Do your job regardless of whether or not anyone sees and anyone acknowledges because the Lord sees you. You're not doing this to please them or to advance yourself through their good favor. You're doing this to please the Lord, to reflect His goodness, His grace, His sacrifice, His glory, even if no one notices. You're doing this for Him. Now, I should add right in here, friends, that doesn't happen through passivity, through apathy, through laziness, through just shirking a task. All right, doing this as unto the Lord with a sincere heart, not by way of eye service, includes hard work and diligence as for the Lord, even when no one's watching. All right, you're not doing that just because you, you punch your clock and then you go home and spend the rest of your night watching TV or playing video games. That's not serving as unto the Lord. Guys, you have this precious gift of this life, and it's gone in moments. I mean, I was just talking with Tori about how quickly life goes by. I was like, I was just saying, June just started. It's over. What happened? Am I gonna waste that in video games? Waste that on movies? Or am I gonna serve the Lord with all my heart? He says, not as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. Don't serve or obey just to gain the approval of others. You are a servant, not of them, but of Christ. And here's the thing about people pleasing, guys. When you live your life to please other people, when you live your life to gain their approval, you make yourself a slave to their opinions. Now what matters most to you is what they're thinking, what they're feeling. Are they comfortable? Are they happy? What can I do to make them more happy, right? And you even start just kind of guessing or presuming upon what they believe or what they think or what they feel, and you can never be happy, but you can't follow Christ and follow them at the same time. You are now a slave to their opinions or what you think their opinions are. We are now slaves to Christ. And praise God for that because it frees us from the need to please everyone around us. What matters most is not what other people think about me, but that Christ, my creator, and my eternal savior, that he is pleased with me. And we seek to serve him. He follows that up by saying, doing the will of God from the heart. Because Christ has saved us and changed us, it should have, be our increasing desire to do the Lord's will. That should be our ever-present delight. Not perfectly, but more and more and more. Now, I get this a lot. So just, you know, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's easy for you to say, Chad. I mean, you're a pastor. It's like part of your job description, right? It's like pastor, job number one, do the will of the Lord from the heart. What about me? What about my job? I mean, how, how do you do the Lord's will when you're, you're delivering sandwiches? How do, you, how do you do the will of the Lord when all I do is count money or all I do is care for loud, noisy, crazy kids? 
I mean, where is the glory in that? I don't see how to do the Lord's will in that. But remember, this is God's word to slaves. To the lowest of the low. And God says to them, you may be a slave. You may be a servant. But you're my servant. Do it with all your heart. You may be a salesman, but you are my salesman. You may be a teacher, but you're my teacher. You may be a stay-at-home mom, but you are my stay-at-home mom. And I have not forgotten you. I have placed you exactly where you are. For your good, for the good of others around you, and for my glory. There is infinite worth in what I'm calling you to do. And so do it with all your heart. Verse 7. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Friends, there's no divide between what is sacred and what is secular. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man happens as much in washing dishes as it does in writing sermons. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't forego writing sermons for the sake of washing dishes. We need to do both. right? It really comes down to, are you doing what the Lord has called you to do? That in this moment, in the present, right here, right now, in this context, in this situation, in this season of life, wherever the Lord has you and however the Lord has gifted you, are you thoughtfully, are you eagerly, are you zealously, are you willingly serving the Lord in your workplace or in your classroom or in your home? Are you doing that with all of your heart? Is that coming from your soul? You're delighting to do His will. And if God can say to the slave, listen, your work, no matter how lowly, can display the glories of Christ, then he is certainly saying that to us, regardless of what our job is or how earthly our master is. Friends, it is no accident that you have the job that you have, that you are in the place that you are in, that you have that boss and you have those coworkers. God has purpose behind putting you in that context and it's not just to show you that God has a sense of humor. It means, it's a means for you to learn how to do the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. That is the means for you to learn how to do that. If you're thinking to yourself right now, well, how on earth do I do that? That's exactly where God wants you to be, right? I would be doing you a disservice. We're saying, okay, all you need to do is these three things because no, the Lord's saying, no, look to me. I've provided this for you so that you might learn to do my will from your heart so that you might learn to render service with a good will as to me and not to man. You're in a perfect place for that. That's his purpose behind that. Now, why why do we not do God's will from the heart? Why do we not render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man? Well, it's because we have placed ourselves or our hope in something other than God's will. It's not my desire to do God's will. It's my desire to do my own will. 
I'm not rendering service with a goodwill to the Lord, but I'm serving man or I'm serving myself through what I do for a living. Perhaps the reason why you are discontent in your job is that you are trying to find some satisfaction or some identity or some meaning in it that the Lord never intended for you to have. You're trying to do your will apart from God's. Or maybe, maybe you're having trouble seeing the value in doing God's will in that job. Got this job, it really stinks. I don't see the point of doing God's will in this job. I don't see the value in it. And what matters more to you is your assessment of the value of that job rather than seeing God's value in you doing his will in that workplace with all your heart. Friends, don't fool yourself into thinking that other people or our culture or even your own thoughts assign value to what you do. God alone assigns value to what you do. And if that is true for the slave, then that is certainly true for your position. Don't fall into the world's lies that you are what you do, that your value, that your position, that your success is dependent upon the title that you have been given or how many people work underneath you or how much personal satisfaction you get from your job or how much money you earn every week or how high up that corner office that you have really is. That means nothing to God. What matters to God is that you do his will from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to him and not to man. Our allegiance is, not, is to Christ and not to our jobs. Our heart attitude is to do the will of God from the heart. And in God's kindness, he gives us this assurance in verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Friends, this is the God of the universe. The God who has given you everything. Like your life is sustained right now because the Lord has done it. And it's only because the Lord has done it. You don't cause your heart to beat. You don't cause your, your body to draw breath. The Lord does that and he could take it like this. And so the Lord only needs to command. You get that, right? He's the God of the universe. You are nothing. All he needs to do is to command, but he doesn't. God delights to bless. He delights to give. He delights to show his graciousness and his mercy towards us. And he reminds us that we will be rewarded for our faithfulness to him, though, we, though he doesn't have to. He certainly doesn't have to to the slave. I mean, who are they? But he does. And he says, even if you serve a wicked master, and even if every good deed done for the glory of Christ goes unseen and unthanked and unappreciated, even if we spend our entire lives in a menial, low-paying, no-consequence job, God promises that he will reward those who do his will from their hearts. It's a guarantee because it changes everything. Now everything is of infinite value. Friends, God knows you. 
God knows your every desire. He knows whenever you attempt to do his will from your heart. God sees you. God remembers you. God is with you and God will reward you. He doesn't have to do it, but he delights to because you are his beloved child and he loves you. And friends, do not forget, he has already given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He has already given you the promised Holy Spirit who is a guarantee of your eternal priceless inheritance until you acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And the reward that we will receive from him is far better than any slap on the back, any thank you note, any raise, any promotion, any media attention, any billboard. And that frees us then from people pleasing. That frees us from serving to gain the attention and favor of others. It frees us from trying to find our satisfaction in our jobs. It frees us from the performance trap. It frees us from the pursuit of position and power. That God sees us and he will eternally reward every deed done in his name, whether we are a slave or free. And in light of that, how worthwhile is all of that that you are seeking to gain from your job? Honestly, friends, in light of that, what does it matter? Nothing. And in one moment, beyond this life, it will mean nothing. On your deathbed, it will mean nothing. But this reward, this inheritance, this promise, everything. Not only does God instruct us as to how we are to display the glories of Christ as those who are under supervision. Verse 9 gives instruction as to those who are supervisors. So second, masters are to lead in submission to Christ. This is going to be short, guys. I promise. Verse 9 reads, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Just as we saw with church leaders in chapter 4, or we saw with husbands and parents in the previous verses, those who have been placed in positions of authority are not free to exploit their position for their own gain. They are to govern or lead in submission to Christ. These household masters are not free to do whatever they want to do with their slaves. They too were challenged in allegiance and attitude and then given assurance just as the slaves were. Even the slave owner is not freed from accountability. They too have a master in heaven. They too are not to live for the praise of men and not to selfishly use their position to advance or exalt themselves. They too are slaves of Christ and are to employ their position in service not to men or to themselves, but to Christ. He says to them, do the same to them. Instead of serving an earthly master, these earthly lords are to serve Christ, their heavenly master, with fear and trembling, with sincerity of heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering good service with a good will 
to the Lord and not to man. So all of that is the same. The same truths apply to the master just as they do the slave. Is it your heart's desire to do God's will with the position that he has given you? Husbands, is that your desire? Parents, is that your desire? Bosses, whoever you are, is that your desire? He says, stop threatening them. Treat them fairly and with honor. Friends, we threaten people when we want to be the boss, when we want to be in control, when we want to be in charge, when we want to play God. That's why we threaten, right? I want to control you. I want to manipulate the situation to get what I want and get it right now. Sit down and be quiet or you're going to get what's coming to you. But he says, this position of authority that you have been given is not about you. It is about Christ. You serve him. He is the Lord and you are his servant. So stop trying to abuse your position to serve yourself. And then he gives them a warning. Remember that the one who is both their master and yours, same master, is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. God will not play favorites. He is not impressed by your position. That three-piece suit means nothing to the Lord. That paycheck, that car you drive, that house you live in, nothing to the Lord. You will be held accountable for how you use your position of authority that you have been given. He sees everything and he will judge. Now again, you might not be a slave owner. You better not be a slave owner. If so, I'm going to turn you in just to obey the law of the land. But the people that God addresses here are heads of the home. So this applies to anyone who is a husband or a father or a church leader. Anyone who has a position of authority over another one. Anyone who has the responsibility in the workplace to direct the actions of others. And he's reminding us that we've been given this position as a stewardship. It doesn't begin and end with us. It is about him. We are not free to rule and manage as we please. We are not free to exploit or to threaten or to belittle or to use others who have been placed in a position under us to get what we want or to make much of ourselves. So if you are a husband or a father or a leader or a supervisor in some capacity, friends, recognize that you have been given a great gift, but it is not about you. It is about him. It's not about you seeking your own glory. You have been given a stewardship and you are called to lead in submission to Christ and to lead in such a way that it directs others towards Christ and makes them want to go to Christ. Fathers, remember what he said. Don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And if you are coming down on them in such a way that they hate you, they're going to hate God. You love them and lead them in such a way that they love the Lord. Same way if you are a boss, if you are a manager, if you are a leader in some capacity. You're to lead in submission to Christ. This is your context for discipleship, that you might learn how to depend upon him and to display his glory in your life as you lead others now to him. And friends, we're given this position of authority 
to display the authority of Christ. Do you get that? That's what you're meant to do with that position that you've been given. To display Christ's lordship. Christ is not some cruel dictator. He's not some mad tyrant. Though he is the eternal son of God, the Lord of the heavens and the earth, he never exploited or abused his authority. Instead, he humbled himself and used his position to redeem, to restore, to heal, to lead others to maturity in him. And whatever leadership capacity the Lord has given you, you, whether you're a husband or a father or a supervisor in your workplace, you are meant to do the same. You are meant to display that to them. Are you serving Christ and those under you with the position that you have been given or are you seeking to serve only yourself? Are you trying to abuse it? Are you pointing others to Christ through your God-given authority or are you directing them to yourself? Can people who the Lord has placed under you, see Christ in the way that you lead or the way that you manage because they were meant to. This is why you have been given this position, to serve Christ, to direct others to him and not to yourself. Friends, do you see now the gospel changes everything? Absolutely everything, no matter who you are, servant or master, you are called to display the glories of Christ by faithfully fulfilling your duties as to the Lord. May the Lord give us strength to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I feel like we need to just start by repenting time of confession yet again, Lord, so often we, we fail to see how the gospel impacts every area of our lives. We fail to see how we are called to be ambassadors for you and to display your goodness and your glory to those around us. And Lord, I pray that this message would be convicting. This is your word to us, but, but that it wouldn't just sit there, that it would motivate us in view of Christ, to live differently. That we would delight to do your will from our hearts. That we would render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Lord, free us from the desire to make much of ourselves or to gain approval in the eyes of others. I pray that what would matter most to us is living for your glory and for our good and other people's good in you Lord, I pray that we would see our need of you and that we would serve as ambassadors, that people would be able to see Christ in us. Lord, we need your grace to do this. We need your spirit to be at work in us. And so we ask that you would do that work in us by your grace and for your glory. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.